On this episode of The Growth Show, we talked to Scott Meyer, the CEO of Ghostery. That's actually a good question to um, not get you the job. Uh, because uh, the, the question that I want to hear is, tell me where you expect this company to be in two years, not mm-hmm. five years, because things are going so fast at this point, I really can't think five years yeah. out. Tell me where you, want to, where you expect the company to be next year and the year after, and tell me how this job you're interviewing me for fits with that. It's not about me, it's about the job. and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Dave Gerhardt, and I have with me today Scott Meyer. He is the CEO of Ghostery. Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So uh, people out there, maybe they're not familiar with Ghostery, maybe they are, give us, uh, give us the quick background on who you guys are. So Ghostery solves this big problem that businesses and consumers both have, which is that data makes the web more convenient and more awesome but it comes at a high price. And both businesses and consumers have the same problem. They want real transparency into what's happening with their data, Mm -hmm. and they want the ability to control it so that consumers can feel safe as they peruse the web, and businesses can make more money in a safe way. Yeah, so talk about uh, about some of the product stuff. So um, maybe go through how I might use it as an individual or like how HubSpot might use it, for example. So millions of consumers use our free Ghostery browser add-on. It's available on all five major browsers, on iOS, Android, etc. We have about 30 to 60,000 new installs of the browser plugin every single day. Wait, I don't want to derail this, but like where, where does that come from? I mean, we always talk about growth. Like, yeah. Do you have a sense of where the majority of those are coming from? Like, for example, here we know, you know it's very content-driven. Our blog is a huge driver of leads. Like, where does the majority of those signups come from? Majority of our signups come from the app stores. And then there are always spikes from social media and PR. And we get reviewed both through our own efforts and just because we're so well known every week. And about 60% of Ghostery consumer users are outside of the United States. There's a lot of strength in Europe, especially Germany, France, the UK, and then really all over the world. So, and then businesses. So businesses, uh, what we found over over the years was that consumers install Ghostery because it's a very effective transparency tool and ad blocker. When you install it, you can see everybody who's collecting your data and block them with a single click. A lot of businesses were using the free plugin to solve really gnarly problems that all this proliferation of marketing technologies caused them. So now we built an enterprise solution that major companies like Intercontinental Hotels Group and Equifax use to make their websites safer, cleaner, and faster. Why do you think... um... So transparency is something we talk about here all the time, um, but it seems to be something that consumers are starting to get more behind. Like, that, that seems to fit in with the mission of Ghostery. Um, why do you think transparency recently has become such an important thing for consumers? Like, why does that matter? Well, the obvious place is Edward Snowden. Yeah. <laughs> and as to, it's, it becomes easier and easier for companies to collect all sorts of data behind the scenes, naturally when Snowden brought this into really sharp relief. People bugged out. Uh, Snowden is a ghostery user. 
And while you may think he's a traitor, you may think he's a patriot, from our perspective, he's a very effective pitch man and we have no relationship with him. Right, right. But when he did that talk at South by Southwest a year and a half ago, they asked him what his favorite tools were and he said, Ghost Tree. And we happened to be at South by exhibiting and the booth was mobbed. I'm sure. Yeah, it was nuts. <laughs> um, is that, so transparency is obviously a big product thing for you. Is that like culture-wise at your company, is that kind of trickle down the whole way through how you run the company? Absolutely. Uh, we, have to, we have to walk the walk. And it's very important uh, that we have the most transparent practices that, that we can have. Uh, all of our code for the Ghost Street plugin is out there online. So anyone, very, anyone who's interested can see exactly what data we collect. And inside the company, I still interview every person we hire. How, uh, how big are you guys? We're 90 people right now. That's, I mean, that's pretty good. Usually it's after that size, it's like you have to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Every person, and we have our, our, most of our engineering and product is in Sandy, Utah, and the front office is in, in New York City. And I spend a lot of time on Skype video, and it's very effective. What advice would you give? So we have a lot of execs that listen, um, and this is actually something we talked about with Sue Heilbronner, who, who connected us. Um, if you're an exec or manager out there listening, you're like, I feel like we need to make the shift to become more transparent. Like, how does that start? Because it's not as easy as just like, you're not going to wake up one morning and post your company's financials internally, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which I think a lot of people default to and think like that's transparency. But like, how do you start to go down that road? So the start to transparency has to come from understanding what your team needs. Because as you said, just barfing up your financials and doing lots of long PowerPoints, and in fact doing stand-ups too frequently makes it, makes people, make, creates just too much noise. Yeah. In fact, we recently scaled back our uh, stand-ups from every month to every six to eight weeks. And what we spent a lot of time doing was just listening to our team and understanding what do they want to know. Mm -hmm. And they want to know things like, the, so in a, in a company, a growth company like ours, they want to know how much cash do you have? They want to know what are our revenues, what are our expenses. They really want to know what's the business model. They want to know how you make money, and they want to know everyone else in the company. And as a CEO, you start to feel like there's no reason not to share that stuff with the team. Correct. You can still control the message as long as it's out there. But Yeah, and I don't worry about controlling the message so much because uh, when you have the advantage of being a privately funded company, you have to just tell everybody everything that they need to know. Yeah. Uh, I think in public companies, and I worked for one for a very long time, it's much, much harder because you can't give away too much information that could affect the stock price. Right, right, right. So uh, I want to rewind back in your career a little bit. So you've held exec roles at Ghostery, About.com, New York Times, um, to name a few. Um, give us a, just what's your kind of career story? How'd you end up at all these places? It's, it's, it is a, it's a maze. I was trying to take some good notes and, and follow along, but sure. I'd so, love to hear that whole story. So I was a management consultant at a business school and a guy named Fred Wilson. I got introduced to Fred. He's now, you know, a very famous venture capitalist. Yeah. Uh, Fred helped me get a job at one of his portfolio companies, a company called Multex. And it was 1998 and the first wave of the internet was sweeping everyone. And I sitting at a very fancy management consulting firm realized I was, uh, I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. So went to Maltex and sort of dropped in there and loved the entrepreneurial culture. Maltex was a success. We took it public. It was eventually sold to Reuters. And that's where I learned the media business. And uh, as I learned more about the media business, the New York Times company at that point had raised $40 million in venture capital to try to roll out their digital business. 
and I managed to convince them to give me a shot and I became the general manager of the New York Times on the web in 2000 and rode it up and down and through and we did some amazing things there. It's a great group of people, a tremendous business. Uh, and we learned some really hard lessons because I was one of the officers on deck on September 11th and we were there in New York City with yeah. everything that was going on. Yeah. Uh, I lost family on September 11th and we had to get the news out. And it was an experience that uh, none of us will ever forget. And I learned the media business and I really learned the power of getting people the information they need. Yeah, how did you, like not to go specifically into that September 11th instance, but just like in general, like when you have hard information to, to share with your team or company, like. How do, you, how do you figure out the way to do that? Is that something like you say, like I need a couple hours myself and maybe like my one or two key people to like throw some ideas off of or does it just happen? So uh, <clears throat> in general, you have to just take that extra step and think about it first because the, everything you say uh, risks being misinterpreted. And you right. have to try to strip out as much jargon as you well, can. Well, and in like a moment like that, the whole company is just looking at you saying like, like tell us, you know, what, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll tell you a quick, um, a true story yeah, yeah. when I was at about.com. So I'm walking to get a cup of coffee down the floor and one of my sales guys stops me and says, Scott, hey man, want to let you know you're doing a really good job. So I'm thinking to myself, right, you know, what, 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 what's yeah. next, right? Yeah, Here yeah. it comes. And so I turned the tables on him and I said, well, why? And he said, it's not because the business is doing well and people are happy, etc. It's because you exude calm because you walk really slow. And I had to stop and laugh because the reason I was walking slow is I'd had knee surgery two weeks beforehand, <laughs> my first day off crutches. I couldn't walk fast if I was being chased. Right. But, but the point in that is that as a leader, everyone's watching what you do all the time. They yeah. watch everything. And so we spend a lot of time and we make mistakes frequently. Uh, we spend a lot of time trying to think through what are the most important points that we want this team to understand. And we had a co company stand up a couple of weeks ago and beginning of the year I set out uh, with the exec team, these are the five things we have to get right. And we simplified it to two. And I think it went over much better. Did you cut out those three things because it was just like, they didn't align with everything or was it, is it easier to say these are our two things, everyone can remember two things that you need to focus on? It was that, it was the latter. It was that uh, the, the five things were starting to get too prescriptive, frankly. And it was two things that we came up with, which is we have to hit our numbers and we have to trust each other. Yeah. And that's it. How, how do you think the, the, so the walking slow thing is really interesting because like you, you're the leader of this company, everybody knows you. They might not know all the other employees, but they know you. How, how, how has that changed? So, you know, this is the growth show. We talk about growth, like 10 people, yeah. 50 people, 90 people. Like how has that changed in between, in between those steps? Because you're at a place now where with 90 employees, you're the CEO. So you can't, you can't be buddy, buddy with everybody because there's a certain expectation. Like if you become friends with everybody, then it doesn't set a good standard. So like, how does this thing scale? That's a, Awesome question. And I'm the founder of the company. Uh, and, and when I think about the original group that we started the company with, yeah, I mean, we camped out, there were 14 of us camped out in our investors' offices for 18 months, right. just figuring out, like, is this thing, thing even going to work? Right. And then we moved to our first office, our sort of rundown sublet. There were, and we, when we moved out of there two years later, there were 34 of us and now there's 90. Um, so it's still, and I will 
up until we get to probably over 250 people, it's important that I'm going to still interview every person and I know everybody's name. And uh, we do some fun stuff, actually, barring here from your offices. When everybody starts, we take a picture of them. And in both offices, there's a picture of someone in some type of goofy ghostry garb. Yeah. So you know who you are. And when we have at these company stand-ups, every new person who joins the team has to introduce themselves to the whole company and give us a embarrassing story or hidden skill mm-hmm. or little known fact. And that's a way of personalizing it. Yeah. And we try to communicate to everybody we hire. There's a couple, there's really two simple cultural things that everyone has to embrace. And they're not the generic ones, right? Like trust and respect for the individual. Because those do deeply matter. But if, if you don't have those fundamentals, you'll never build a great company. Mm-hmm. For us, what matters is the first is you have to take your job very seriously, but you can't take yourself too seriously. Because if you start taking yourself too seriously, you miss the point, which is that we succeed and fail together. And if you take yourself seriously, you can set it up, set up these I win, you lose situations, which will doom the company. Right. Uh, you gotta just be able to have fun with it, but you gotta get your work done. Right. The second is you have to think what we do is cool. Yeah, it seems like you, you're, you're, you have to have a, even more than most companies, you have to have a mission, a person who is aligned with that mission. Like, Absolutely. If you don't care about, you know, online, your online identity and transparency and this whole like, you know, culture it's building around, it's probably not gonna be a great fit. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's very much true. Um, so are the, so when you interview, so you interview everybody, right? Yeah. Is that what you're trying to get at? Like, I'm assuming if you're interviewing me, doesn't matter if I'm an engineer, if I'm in marketing, if I'm in sales, that somebody else is gonna grill me on that stuff. Yep. You're, you're kind of like the final culture checkpoint. Correct, so uh, when, by the time someone gets to me, the, the hiring manager deci- decided yeah. they wanna hire that person. An offer should be coming next, as long as they don't get on the call with you and, and do something. Yeah, <laughs> and I'd say about one out of every 15 people, I say no, Yeah. and that's pretty good ratio. And uh, what I'm looking for is uh, a couple things. The first one is, I want to ask them questions about what do they want to do next and what kind of company do they want to work for? Because at a company like ours, the kind of people we hire, they have multiple offers. Right. And if they want to go somewhere else for a particular reason, it's actually better that they do that uh, if they don't really grasp what we do. And it's not as though it's a cult, but they've got to think what we do is pretty cool. And then the second piece then is I want to see what kind of questions they ask me. And I can tell by the questions they're asking me if they're approaching us the right way. G- give me one good example. Don't spoil like the ghostery interview secrets, but yeah, like if I'm you're not... interviewing me right now, what's what's a question that would be a good indicator? Is it me saying like, uh, here's what I want to do in my career. How does that fit inside of your company? Or like, that's actually a good question to um, not get you the job, uh, because th- uh, th- the the question that I want to hear is tell me where you expect this company to be in two years, not mm-hmm. five years, because things are going so fast at this point, I really can't think five years yeah. out. Tell me where you want it, where you expect the company to be next year and the year after, and tell me how this job you're interviewing me for fits with that. It's what, not about me, it's about the job. What does that get at? That gets at uh, this person wants to be connected to the strategy of the overall company, which is very, very important because uh, especially with younger folks coming up, yeah. that ability to be connected to the strategy. I know when I was coming up, it was pretty much like, just get to work. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It comes up a lot, actually, when we, we talk about like what makes someone love a job and the theme that keeps it coming up over and over is like, the way you love a job is if, that jo- if it matters if you show up. 
like yeah. to work, right? That's right. Forget if you have 90 people or 9,000 people. Like, does it matter if I show up and do my job today? Does that help move the needle on some yep. metric for the company? Absolutely. And that extends to the whole company. When I look at, and we're based in New York, there are a lot of really great companies. And there's a lot of companies where people make a lot of money. And if that company disappeared off the face of the earth tomorrow, it wouldn't take very long for the market to reabsorb it. If our company disappears tomorrow, it'd be bad. Yeah. There's millions and millions of people that use our plugin, and there's hundreds of companies, and we monitor tens of thousands of websites to make them cleaner, faster, and safer. And if we were gone, a lot of people would be wondering what they're yeah. going to do, and that matters. That so I didn't write this down, but this made me that made me think of this. Like so, you have this product that people are very probably vocal about. If yes. It, if it went away, is that hard? Is that a hard segment to sell to? Like you have these. It's a much more techier crowd, like probably a lot of developers, like people who actually know how your product works behind the scenes. Like, is that a harder thing to, to market and sell when people actually know how things work? Like, if you're selling software not to developers, you can kind of get away with a lot of things, you know? <laughs> so, oh, that's a, that's a hard question. So, the thing that matters most is back to transparency. So, when you have a, when the, the vocal folks who use and love your product are extremely sophisticated, uh, developers and tech people are extremely cynical. They're, not, they're skeptical for, and then move into cynicism. And so the fact that we are a for-profit business and the core of our business model is taking anonymous data that people opt in to share with us right. and packaging that into a suite of tools and services that big businesses use to make their sites better and to make more money, uh, initially that could come off as off-putting. And because we're completely transparent about it, the code is right there, we tell everybody what we do, we don't make any bones about it, uh, <clears throat> that that's initially hard, but we think it's elegant and yeah. we don't we don't stress about it too you, much. Our cards are out on the table, you know what we're doing. It, yeah. Haters are gonna hate and yeah. we're okay with that because we're true to our, our true to our, our mission yep. and we take it real seriously. Alright, I wanna talk about like actually tactical growth a little bit. So uh, you were at about.com and while you were there, business grew something like 135% from when per year. Yeah. Per year. Uh, from when the time uh, the Times bought that Correct. company, um, and this wasn't like growing from ten million to fifteen million no. or something. This was growing to over a hundred million. This was thirty six million to one hundred and three million. Uh, can you boil down that growth like into a couple of different things? Yeah. So one has nothing to do with me at all. It was uh, actually most of it had nothing to do with me, but a big piece of it is right place, right time. Uh, the New York Times company bought about.com just at the the inflection point for search engine optimization, and we had figured out how to get our content really well optimized. So this is right around the time that people like actually, the default was to go look something up online. Exactly, yeah. and we were always in the first two or three search results. So that was the first piece. The other, and then I think about the, the this, what took that incredible uh, opportunity that we acquired and how we made it even better was that we built a brand with advertisers. So at that point, half of the revenue came from Google and the other half came from display advertisers. But the display advertising business, we weren't viewed as a strategic partner. The agencies didn't come to us and think of us first. And we built a brand with the ad agencies by giving them great environments where they felt they could not only get the conversions they were looking for, but to build their brand. Yeah. And that was the first piece. And then the second piece is that we got very aggressive and expanded out our content. So when I got there, we had about, uh, gosh, we had about 200 uh, active, we had about 200, sorry, no, we had 400 writers, and when I left, we had almost 1,000. 
and we had and again this is not the team that that we inherited and built right. took that model and was able to scale it out globally we launched in china and uh, expanded out a whole lot of new guide sites and it was it was wonderful why do you think that was so successful like there's a definitely uh, for every good story about an acquisition there's a story about how it just like never works and it takes forever to get integrated like why did this work so well you think so uh, the the executives at the Times company, so I was one of them. Yeah. I came over, I was running the Times on the web, and I was actually here in Boston working at the Boston Globe. The Times company bought it, and Arthur Sulzberger and Janet Robinson and Martin Nissenholz, who's my boss, and a guy named Jason Rapp, who led the deal, they thought it through really well. And when I came in, what we thought through was what's going to be integrated and what's not. And we only integrated the bare necessities. And in fact, that made even simple, stupid stuff, like we were never on the same common calendaring system as the New York Times, which was good because we were there when we needed to be there and not the rest of the time. Right. And then the key killer piece was most acquisitions, uh, when you bring them on, you focus on the asset becoming really valuable, but you don't always focus on how what you've acquired, the expertise can help the rest of the company. Uh, the search engine optimization unit of about.com, which spun out as now it's actually a standalone consulting firm. They taught SEO to the whole Times company and generated like millions right. of dollars of value. And that's something that's hard to, you, you, that's hard, you can't quantify that. Like we can say yeah. like, yes, we know this code base is this, yeah. is worth this, but like there's the inherent value of, here's a team doing something really smart and now they can go and educate the rest of the yeah. company. Yeah, and then the Times company embraced that. Yeah. Didn't view it as a threat and didn't view it with, with skepticism, which was, was wonderful. Yeah. What's the, so you probably talked to a lot of other execs or, you know, people earlier in their career. What do you think the biggest thing that people get wrong or what's the biggest misconception about growth? The biggest misconception about growth is that as you, that, um, as you grow beyond the first million in revenue to 10 million, then to 25 and on up, uh, there's a misconception that that those same people are going to get you there, yeah. and that there it's that it's more important to hold on to the to the same people versus understanding that you're going to have to make really hard choices about people and about products and especially about process because everyone fears process. Oh, you're killing the startup culture. I get it. I I was there when it was just like six of us with PowerPoint, and you don't love process, but you realize that you need the right amount at the right point in time. And you need to add people who yeah. have different skills. That's a really good point. I forget. I, I will put a link to this when I find it. There was um, the founder or CEO of Rakuten was talking about yeah. uh, how basically businesses completely change every time things triple. Yeah. Right. So like you go from three people in an office and like you can talk to everybody. Now all of a sudden there's nine people in the office and things are getting different and that keeps scaling that way. So it's kind of yeah. your point about revenue. Yeah. And the key, the piece you can't lose. And this is something else that I, I tell the whole team is that you can't lose the ability of anyone at any level to come talk to me or to their boss. And I tell everybody is that, is that if you have fundamental questions or advice about our corporate strategy, or you've got a barrier to making you successful in your job that you feel is, it needs to get moved, come see me anytime. But, and that's where no matter how big we get, I, I hope that when we go from 90 to 200 to 2000 one day that we can still preserve that. So how, how do you think about your job as, as CEO today? Like, um, 
you have 90 people. I know talking to a lot of startup founders, it's like you, you spend 45% of your time hiring, uh, 45% of your time recruiting, and then the other 10% is like putting out fire. Right, and the other 100% running the company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, when we started the company, it was important to me that HR was always a valued function and it was not personnel. And a lot, I you know, spent years at the New York Times, and those two are often munched together, and they're really different. So uh, focusing on the people, my view is that if it's going really well, I'm spending about a third of my time on people issues, both good and bad. And we've been through went through a major restructuring over the past year, and so there were times where it was 80%. Now we're in a very stable place. It, it, it fluctuates between 30 and 50% of my time. Uh, the rest of the time, uh, Every CEO has their strengths and weaknesses, and I know I've learned the hard way which ones I'm good at, where I'm good and where I'm not. And so I try to spend my time, I have to, and when I look at my goals every quarter, I have to make sure I talk to a customer and a prospect every week. And I get to our London office once a quarter, spend a week a month in Salt Lake City at our, Sandy, at our tech office, and uh, that I have regular standups with each of the execs. And we've, the, the technology to do that's really simple. We actually open up a, a shared Google Doc and we contribute thoughts in. So going into everybody's standup, we have a set of topics that we've, both can, that we've both contributed and they're structured to the discussion. And that, we, that also enables us to know where we have to deal with something right away right. and where we can cover it in our weekly standup. So, so instead of you setting the agenda, you say, hey, all, here's all my direct reports. Everybody's yeah. going to write in three or four <clears throat> bullets that we need to hit on this meeting. Exactly. And uh, so I'm a big devotee of uh, Ben Horowitz. His book, unbelievable book. Yeah, the, I, I think everybody listening would love the hard thing about hard you things. You have to it's read it. a great it's book. A if yeah. you're going to work in a fast growth company, yeah. you, it's required reading. And in there, he talked about that um, stand-ups, one-on-ones, are the, not for the CEO. They're for the person who is on your exec team. Yep. And so I've typically got one or two things that are important, but it's really their time. And that's how I get a good handle on what they're doing. Yeah, I think uh, the point that he makes in that book is like, that, that person needs to come prepared to that meeting. It's not your job to prepare for as a CEO. Yes. Come to me and say like, okay, here's the three things I need your help on. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned... Strength and weaknesses, uh, your strengths and weaknesses as a CEO. Um, what would you go back if I was a first-time CEO or you're talking to somebody and I said, like, I, what are the one or two things that you wish you knew when you first started, you know, in your executive roles? Like, what would they be? So the first thing I wish I knew was that everything will take twice as long as you expect, and that's okay. No matter how good you are, it's always going to take twice as long. And you have to... In some ways, it's almost like having kids. If they told you how hard it was going to be, the, the human race would die out. <laughs> right. It's worth it in the end. So uh, you just have to be prepared for that, even though you intellectually get it, emotionally you don't. I think the other couple things, uh, as a CEO, it's different than as your as first time in a management role. I think the first time in a management role, it's really important that folks understand as you move from individual contributor that it doesn't matter, that you, that you have to make clear you're there to help them. And that carries all the way through to, to being CEO in that there are times you have to make really hard decisions that people hate and you absorb the consequences of that. And that's just life. And you have to have, uh, you have to have time outside of work and do other things. I happen to have, I have a great family and 
that's important to me and I yeah. you know, do other things just to keep myself yeah. sane. Let's, let's dive yeah. into that actually. I think a lot of people, the thing that doesn't get talked about enough is the, this is all about work. Like what happens outside? Like do you have uh, boundaries? Like do you say like, all right, I'm not going to touch my phone when I get home. I mean, that's not realistic, but like <laughs> do you have... Do you, you know, do you have certain boundaries that you try to set for yourself or? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I, in general, uh, now early startup days, there were no boundaries. It's impossible. It's 24 impo- seven. It's, 20, yeah. it's impossible. Now. Yeah. I, I, uh, I will check email. I get home and then I try to not touch email for a couple hours and get my kids to bed when I'm home mm-hmm. and get my kids to bed, make sure I have some time with my wife, try to get to the gym. And that really matters. And on the weekends in particular, I try to go and at least have one entire 24 hour period where I'm off the grid. Yeah. And that doesn't take, it goes by very quickly, but that's just helpful to clear your mind. Yeah. And you don't have the stress of, well, you might have the stress of thinking about you need to check in, but if you set the expectation, I'm going to not do anything for 24 hours. You yeah. Can, yeah. And having that clarity, enables you to be out of the weeds of what's coming across your email to in fact maybe get a little perspective on the bigger picture of the business and what you're what you're what you're aiming for yeah well it's hard because even uh like i have only been in the workforce for seven years now right and even I, my first job was i email was a thing that you couldn't really check overnight like it, you know <laughs> and so just i think about today like imagine showing up to work the next day and 50 emails were in your inbox right versus like you didn't have a chance to even look at them the night before yep um all right so let's let's wrap up and talk about uh all of your jobs have been in the you know digital marketing advertising space like what are some of the things that have you excited right now so now is, well, it's always the most interesting time, but when I look at what has me most fired up right now, I think on the e-commerce side, we've just scratched the surface. So I, I spent most of my career on the media side, and there was always this gap between time spent online and ad dollars, and now it's evened out. If you look at most e-commerce in the US, the percentage of total dollars spent at retail relative to e-commerce, it's tiny, mm-hmm. 10%, 15% max. So there's a massive uh, transition that's about to happen. And then there's also the connection of your online and offline because offline and inf- online influences so much of your offline behavior. Yeah. Well, I think about how many times you are in a store and you walk into the store and what you ha- what, what you're looking for isn't there. And yeah. so you look on your phone and then might walk down the mall to the store that has it. Yep. Right. Or you'll just order it right there on the spot. Yeah. So that, that to me, and we, our company is, is right in the middle of that because we're seeing our, our clients and whether our main focus is in retail, travel, financial services, publishing and automotive. That's our, our, our real, you know, we have clients across all categories, but that's where we have a lot of penetration. So what their work and seeing it through their eyes, it's absolutely about think I've been doing digital for almost 20 years. And I think that everybody's transitioned. It's companies are still just scratching the surface of, of quote, di- getting digital right, which is true. I think the second piece then is that as you have limitless tools to pursue your goals there, it's getting harder and harder to keep it all straight. And I think that any company, and I think HubSpot does a good job at this. I think we do a good job at this. That's, that's our business. Anybody who helps companies to keep this all straight, because you're going to always be presented with this ever-growing set of point solutions to solve your problems. And with mobile and internet of things, there's a whole 
other ecosystem that's going to explode. So your ability to manage that and keep it under control to get the max benefit for your company, that's got me really excited. Well, yeah, from a, from a product perspective and even from a content and marketing perspective, like if you are the company that is out there educating about that topic, like consumer behavior is to default to who's giving me the best information about this. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm ready to make a buying decision, I'm probably gonna go there. Yep, yeah. yep. And the, the underlying piece of it all though is that the fundamentals will not change. The experience has to be really fast has to be safe and secure and the consumer and the company both have need to have the control over their own data cool well scott thank you for coming on the show my pleasure I thanks for inviting it. me uh, thanks everybody for listening to this episode of the growth show if you enjoyed it we'd be pumped if you could leave us a quick review on itunes uh, and if you head over to thegrowthshow.com you can get a sneak peek at upcoming guests and we'll give you some access to exclusive content as well i'm dave gerhardt and we'll talk to you again soon You sound good. Yeah, you can speak. I'm good? Yeah. Hi, everyone. You sound like a good speaker. I'm all right. This is Scott Meyer. I want my MTV. <laughs> Perfect.